invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of John, to the Gospel of John. A little bit later, I'll be making reference to one of the answers in our Heidelberg Catechism, a document written in 1563, which still reads like it is fresh, because all truth doesn't have an expiration date. And you'll find that, if you'd like to see those very words that I'll quote from, in the Thin Forms and Prayers book, Heidelberg Catechism, under Lord's Day 21. The reason for that is because question and answer 54 asks a perennial question. It asks the question, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? Now, the context in which our forebears in the Reformed faith were writing that was one of the Protestant Reformation. Of course, there are many questions about what is the nature of the church. But it is no less essential today. It is one of the crying needs of our time for Christians to have a clear understanding of the doctrine of the church. It's in evidence all around us in 10,000 ways that people hold views of the church that do not adhere to that which is in Scripture. Now, thankfully, throughout the Bible, God has provided a number of different analogies that help us to understand the doctrine of the church. I wonder if you can think of any of those off the top of your head. I wonder if any of you children are familiar, say, with the analogy, the picture of the body of Christ, where the church is described as a body to indicate that we are all many members, but we are united by one animating power, the Holy Spirit, joined to one head, one authority over all, which is Jesus Christ. And so there are a number of analogies in the Bible that help us understand the doctrine of the church. Here in John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of Jews, as well as some particular ones among them, his disciples, about the church, and he uses a specific analogy. Let's give our attention here to the analogy of the shepherd and the sheep, beginning at verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we come before your word, we come knowing that you cause it to abound for us. We thank you that your Holy Spirit works within your people, and we ask this morning that you would incline our hearts, illumine our understanding, lead us 
into the truth. Preserve us from error. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would receive glory even as you transform us from glory to glory. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've ever given thought to the word, or the words, the Bible, what the Bible means. The phrase is based on two ancient words, which basically mean the books. And as a description of the format of the scriptures, it's very fitting because there are, of course, 66 books bound typically under one cover, the Bible. But in terms of content, have you appreciated that it's not very descriptive? Somebody picks up a Bible, if they don't know anything about the Bible already, the words, the Bible, doesn't tell them very much. Now, imagine that the Bible came with a more descriptive title. What would it be? I don't think there's one right answer here. I think overall it was wise for the Lord to not put such a title on. But for purposes this morning, we might think of the Bible this way. It is the shepherd's tale. Because from the very beginning, if you go right back to Genesis in the earliest chapters and follow it to the very end of the book of Revelation, you find the theme of the shepherd leading a sheep woven throughout. It is one unified story of God guiding, guarding, governing his people. And that is a wonderful thing to consider as a metaphor to help us understand the church because that will tell us something about Christ's role in relation to the sheep. When you consider this analogy, it gives you some insight into how we recognize true sheep. And it gives us some sense of the response that the Lord desires of us. So these are the kinds of ideas that we're going to consider this morning as we look at John chapter 10. As we do so, we're going to examine it under three main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. Before we come to those main headings, though, I want you to think simply about the title, Shepherd. The title of Shepherd. You find it used in both the Old and the New Testament. And it's applied basically to anyone whom God sets in a position of oversight and responsibility for his covenant people. So you find it applied to the prophets, the priests, and the kings. For instance, of David in 2 Samuel 5, it says, the Lord speaking, you will shepherd my people Israel. And that's important because it tells us something about the kind of leadership God wants for his people. Not tyranny. A shepherd king is always his desire. Then in the New Testament, we find something very similar. Elders of the local church are addressed as shepherds again. 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is instructing elders in a local church, and he says in verses 1 and 4, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And so we see that in both periods of history, before and after Jesus' incarnation, God shepherds by means of people, fallible people, fallen people, sinful people, but people whom he calls and appoints to that position. That then raises a question, in this pecking order of shepherds, where there are under-shepherds and a supreme shepherd, who's at the top? The writers of the Old Testament always identify Yahweh, the covenant name of God, what you see in your Bible is all uppercase Lord. They always identify Yahweh as the chief shepherd, 
of Israel. Psalm 78 verse 52 says, Yahweh led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. I want you to hold that in your mind. We're going to come back to that. Yahweh led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. In the light of this, the first, the most important thing we can do in our doctrine of the church is understand how Christ relates to it. What is his role? What is the significance of his words in verse 14 where he says, I am the good shepherd. This is our first main idea. Jesus presents himself as the one who has shepherded the elect of God throughout all ages. He wasn't hired at the time of his incarnation. He didn't begin. He didn't have to learn. He is the one who entered history in human flesh, but who at all times is the shepherd. Now, to appreciate the magnitude of what Jesus is claiming here, to see it in context, I want you to turn to another passage. Keep a mark here in John, but look at Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34 stands as the primary background to Jesus' discourse in John 10. The entire chapter of Ezekiel 34 is built around this metaphor of the shepherd, And in that chapter, God presents himself as the chief shepherd over his covenant people. In the context there, he's issuing a rebuke. He's rebuking the prophets, the priests, and the kings who failed, who abused the flock. Hear what the Lord says in verses 11 and 22. Verse 11, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Verse 22, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. Israel's ultimate assurance was that God himself would be the deliverer of his elect people. And that can be your only assurance as well, that a sovereign God is bringing you home to glory, is leading you to everlasting life. That can be the only assurance you have concerning others. Anyone who's tried to guide others into the faith and keep them on the path, knows that apart from God's grace, it's hopeless. But then I want you to notice something that was enigmatic, which was mysterious in the time when it was first said by Ezekiel in verse 23. The Lord, still speaking, says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, mind you, Ezekiel lives centuries after King David. But in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord promised that one of David's descendants, who's often described as David, symbolically, one of David's descendants would come who would be the deliverer of God's people. And that's what it's referring to here. Look again at verse 24. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And so there is the question, which is it? God is the chief shepherd, but then there's one shepherd set up over them who's also identified as the king and the prince. And in the period between the last book of the Old Testament being written, Malachi, and the time of Jesus, period we call Second Temple Judaism, there were even some Jews who wrote that maybe David himself is going to be raised from the dead and come back and sit on the throne. But then we find in the Gospels the angels announcing, even as we consider this season of Advent, that Jesus is this descendant of David, 
according to the flesh. And yet he makes an even more astounding claim. In verse 14, and it's against this backdrop that you have to read verse 14, when he says, I am the good shepherd. The Greek language has an indefinite article, as does Aramaic. Whatever Jesus said to them that day, he had the option to say, I am a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. And in that moment, he is asserting himself to be Yahweh, God, the covenant king of the Old Testament, the eternal creator, come into their midst to shepherd his people and at once to be the heir of David. Now that was not lost on the people who heard him because just a little bit lower we find in verse 19 that his words caused division among the Jews. In fact, some of them say, what he's saying is demonic. That's blasphemous. How can you say that? Mind you, under the old covenant, there were times when God would show up among his people in a human-like form. Yet it was always understood that he wasn't born and he didn't share our weak nature. Those were miraculous manifestations, what we call a theophany. But here, a man of flesh and blood is standing before them, a man who had a history, a mother. And he says, I am the good shepherd. The authors inspired to write the New Testament did not miss this point. Hear carefully what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2 verses 24 and 25, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Then he quotes Isaiah, by his stripes you are healed. For, quote, you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the original context of Isaiah, that passage is clearly calling God the overseer and the shepherd of Israel. Even as we saw in Psalm 78, Yahweh led out his people from Egypt. Compare Jude, verse 5. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus, who saved a people out of it. When did he do that? I thought he was born about 2,000 years ago. Because he did not begin to exist. He was born according to human nature, but he is one shepherd over all times. When you think of Jesus, in a sense, always think of his human nature, but instantly remember He is eternal God, the second person of the Trinity. And so there is a being who had a love for his sheep so much that he would enter their condition in order to deliver them. But he is not, first of all, a human. He transcends everything we can imagine. And this is whom God sets as our shepherd overall and why we can have confidence because he is truly God. This is what we confess in our Huddleberg Catechism, question answer 54. When it says, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? The answer is, I believe that the Son of God, through his word and spirit, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. The most important 
aspect of your doctrine of the church doesn't begin with the church, it begins with Christ. Without Christ, there is no church. We wouldn't be doing this. And if, if you have a kind of Christianity that you could take Jesus out of, like a spare part, it's not Christianity. Christianity is all about Christ. Not about merely imitating him, but about trusting in him, that he is our deliverer, our shepherd. Now, I want you to appreciate something for a moment. Think about the life and the work of a shepherd. Shepherds can lead sheep in different ways at different times. Say it's fair weather outside. Maybe they lead the sheep into a pen with picket fences. But then if there's wind, maybe the shepherd will lead the sheep into a different fold. Leads the sheep into a fold with solid walls so that the wind doesn't blow up against the sheep. I had the pleasure of seeing this some time ago, many years ago now. I was in Ireland, and maybe you've been somewhere where you get to see a lot of sheep. And to see them being driven, the same flock, going from one fold to another. Even so, we might say that Christ, who is the one shepherd over the people of God in all ages, yet enfolds them differently at different times. And this brings us to our second main idea. In your doctrine of the church, it's very important that you understand this. And I want to speak especially to the children here. Children, I want you to understand that prior to Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary, prior to what we call the incarnation, his taking on our human nature, before that, Jesus ordinarily enfolded his sheep under what we call the Old Covenant. He placed them within certain boundaries, and that's where he reared and governed and guided them. Now, I say ordinarily because you will find some exceptions in the Old Testament. But overwhelmingly, as a rule, that's how he did this. Now, I'll explain what that means if you're not familiar with that, but look with me at verse 16 of John chapter 14, or John chapter 10. So as we consider how Christ enfolded his sheep prior to his incarnation, you see Jesus alludes to this in verse 16. He says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Remember to whom he's speaking. He's speaking to a crowd of Jews. When he says, I have other sheep, he's saying there are others whom I am leading to salvation as well. Others whom I am shepherding to life. But then he says, this fold. What is he referring to? By saying this, he's referring to something near at hand, something which was familiar to the people with whom he was speaking, something which was known to the Jews. Think about, again, the significance of a fold versus a flock. A flock is a bunch of living creatures being cared for by a shepherd. Those are the people. A fold is some kind of inanimate structure, some kind of enclosure. These are separate. The fold is not the flock. And he says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. When he says this fold, he's referring basically to the structures God had put in place from the time of Abraham and through Moses until the coming of Christ. The Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant were instituted for a time to enfold the elect of God. That's ordinarily where the Spirit raised up his believers. Genesis Chapters 10 and 11 are crucial for your understanding of the entire Bible. Genesis chapter 10 tells the story of 
The peoples following the flood who are gathered to one place and decide to build a tower in order that they would not be separated, even though the Lord told them to fill the whole earth. And the Lord instead divides their tongues and disperses them. In the very next chapter, Genesis 11, God selects one person and says, I'm going to make a nation for myself. I'm going to make for myself a people. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, expound on what happened there. Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, tell that when God separated the nations, he, quote, disinherited them. And that he turned them over to idolatry for a time. But in contrast to that, Deuteronomy 32 verse 9 says, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. So from among all the nations for a period of time, there was one ethnic group in the whole world among whom God ordinarily placed his elect. You can be offended at that, but this is the same God who does not make a way of salvation for angels who fall. God is sovereign, and he can choose, and he chose Israel for that time. In fact, Jesus himself, if you were to look over at John chapter 4, states this very plainly. He's speaking to a Samaritan woman, not a Jewish woman. The woman wants to know, should I worship on this mountain or that mountain, the one of the Samaritans or the one of the Jews? What would be the common answer today? I think people would say, well, if you want to worship anywhere, it doesn't matter. God will receive all of our worship from all the nations because it's the same God everywhere. Jesus says, John chapter 4, verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. For a period of time, God used the fold of the old covenant as a kind of ecclesiastical structure, a churchly structure for governing and guiding his people, for keeping them separate and distinct from the world. Now, I want to be clear about something. Of course, under the Old Covenant, it's not as if everybody who was within that fold outwardly was a genuine believer. And we have to remember that today as well for the church. Outward participation does not equal being a true sheep. Jesus, in fact, points that out in our very passage where, look, in John chapter 10, verse 26, speaking to certain Jews, he says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Outwardly, they were sheep, but inwardly, they were not. Ezekiel 34, the chapter we saw previously, the Lord says, as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, I shall judge between sheep and sheep. At the end of Revelation, we see the Lord makes a distinction and he places some on the left, some on the right. And he calls some goats and some sheep. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, In that day many shall say, Lord, Lord, did we not serve you? And he says, Depart from me, I never knew you. Outwardly they lived in the fold. Inwardly they were not sheep. We'll come back to how we can discern whether or not we are true sheep. But at this point, the main thing to grasp is that for a period of thousands of years, The Holy Spirit enfolded God's elect and Christ governed them within the boundaries, the ethnic and ritual kind of fencing of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. But now Jesus signals to his disciples that there's a transition coming. And this is in verse 3 
So have John 10 ready. Our third, our final heading here is to consider how Christ shepherds his people from the time of his incarnation forward. And the simple answer is that he does so by enfolding them in a bigger, better fold than what they had previously known. Enfolding them in a bigger, better fold. I want you to bear something in mind. As Jesus was speaking about these things and throughout the Gospels, he talks about the calling of the Gentiles. That was not news to the Jews. In dozens of places throughout the Old Testament, God made it clear a time was coming when he was going to draw the nations to faith. In fact, when he called Abraham, remember, he disinherited the nations, Genesis 10. He calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make you my own nation. But he says, I'm blessing you in order that you might become a blessing to all the nations. Or Isaiah 60, verse 30, nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. There was nothing new about the idea of the Gentiles being brought to faith. Where the Gentiles erred, or rather not the Gentiles, the disciples initially erred, where some people err this day, is in thinking that the way that God was going to call the Gentiles was by enfolding them under the Old Covenant unfolding them under the Mosaic law. This is a crucial error that they made because they were expecting that the Gentiles had to convert and adopt things like circumcision, dietary laws, bloody sacrifice, all of the rituals in order to be recognized as believers. It's not that they all thought that you're saved by doing those things. It's that they thought you don't belong to the fold, therefore you're not a believer. But Jesus is signaling that was going to change how you recognize who are among the people of God. What was his plan? His plan all along was very simple. The plan was that once he had come, then he would lead believing Jews out of the former fold and into the new covenant fold. That is, the externals would change. The fold in which you find, ordinarily find believers, changes. And so what does he do? This is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. We see Christ through his apostles is leading Jewish believers into a new structure, a new fold. When you have all the Jews present in Acts chapter 2 for Pentecost, and they say, what must we do that we may be saved? Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. When he says that, he's not... Supposing, I don't think that every last one of them just got saved at the moment, that they were all unregenerate people who had never had faith. They're saying, what ought we to do if we are to be associated with those who are saved? What ought we to do if we are among the believers? And he instructs them, just as Christ told them, be baptized. Basically, from that point forward, the Lord, through his apostles, sets up three marks by which you would recognize the true sheep. The church is recognized, according to our Belgian Confession, in light of Scripture, by these three things. Pure preaching of the gospel. Pure administration of the two sacraments of the new covenant. Baptism and communion. And by biblical church discipline. Jesus first led the Jews into that fold. Look at me at John chapter 10, verse 3. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. But then, once the Jews were brought into the new covenant, what happens? Then God begins to bring the Gentiles into the same fold. Not a different one, not two parallel bodies in which we associate these are the visible church, but he leads the Gentiles into the same body as the Jews. Verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. I want you to see where this is clearly described in the New Testament. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 2, I invite you to turn there. Because this continues to be a major bone of contention among Christians. What is God's relationship to ethnic Jews? Is it okay for an ethnic Jew not to convert and to participate in new covenant life? Are these two completely separate bodies Or is there one true church? And the word church, by the way, just means assembly. It has formal connotations. But we would say there is one church of God, spiritually and visibly in the world. Ephesians chapter 2, look at me at verse 12. We're going to read all the way to verse 22 because this is one of the clearest passages in the Bible concerning this. Here Paul is speaking to Gentile converts to the Christian faith who were questioning whether or not they were full citizens as a Jewish believer. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that is, Jews and Gentiles who have faith, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, mind you, all of whom were Jews in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Or by the Spirit. 
When we consider what Christ has done, we should never say something like, Gentile believers have replaced the Jews. Gentile believers have not replaced anyone. Gentile believers have joined alongside Jewish believers. What has been exchanged is the old fold for the new fold. But the sheep went out, and the sheep went in, and then more sheep were added. When the fold wasn't big enough, the dividing wall was broken. Christ made room. And it's entirely appropriate that in an age when his desire is to send us into all the world, he would change the form of the church into something that is scalable and mobile. The church can go anywhere now with ease. But this is his good design for one essential people of God. How then do we live in light of this? With what minutes we have that remain, I want to direct your attention in just a few ways to what the Lord would call you to. In the first place, whether for your own salvation or for those whom God has placed you around in order to minister, let me exhort you, weigh the gravity, the necessity of being numbered among the sheep. The necessity of being numbered among the sheep. Our passage in verse 7 and verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Elsewhere, he makes clear the way we enter is by faith. Faith in Christ alone, not faith in Christ plus your faithfulness. Faith that Christ is the beginning and the end. He who began a good work and you shall complete it. Faith that he is the one whose whole life of obedience is counted to you in order that you should be justified by faith, declared righteous. He whose spirit works in you a new work and causes you to persevere to the end. He who suffered for you, even as he says, I lay my life down for my sheep. Verse 15. Let that sink in. I lay my life down for my sheep. The value of Christ's atonement, his substitutionary death, is of infinite value, but of limited application. Only those who believe upon him can have any assurance that they will be saved. Only those who follow him as their shepherd have legitimate assurance that God's spirit is alive and working in them. Look at verse 3 and consider how the sheep are to be recognized. Jesus says, His sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Those who know God do recognize his voice. They hear it in the word. It's not just text printed on a paper, images flashing on a screen. But God's spirit works with them such that they follow him. Imperfectly, the analogy of sheep holds. But truly, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 makes this even more explicit. By this we can be sure that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If anyone says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, when he says keep his commandments, he doesn't mean perfectly at every moment. Even the phrasing he uses, the grammar he uses, means as a characteristic of life. Ongoing repentance, sincere desire. Do you know him? 
If you don't, the great news is that the door by which you enter is always right next to you. Christ says, today is the day of salvation. Believe upon me and you will be saved. And so you can trust that if your faith is in him, he will be your shepherd. But then he calls you to live a certain way. Obviously, in terms of discipleship, we could go for days, months, years on what that would look like. But I want to bring your attention to one aspect in particular, one of the marks of those who know him. Ordinarily, under the old covenant, it was to be assumed that if somebody departed from the fold, they were reckoned lost. Now God knows the heart. But if somebody knowingly departed from the structures God had established for his worship and life, if they willingly leave that, all we can fear is that they don't know him. His sheep hear his voice and follow him. Under the new covenant, God has similarly appointed certain structures. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says, Do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. The word meet there, synagogue, sounds like another word you might know, synagogue. It was a well-known word at that time for the weekly gathering of the Jews in a local area to worship God. And he says, do not neglect this gathering, as some have. Now, of course, there are reasons why sometimes it's not possible or appropriate to gather. Ordinarily, God's people pant and long to be where the food is, where God's spirit is at work where it's served up, where the water is. They desire to be among the sheep. If if you profess to be a Christian and yet you can only speak ill of the sheep, I warn you, that is one of the primary symptoms of those who are not. If you can constantly have bad words about the bride of Christ on your lips, I'm not talking about the need to acknowledge error and grow, but if you have a bitterness towards the flock, Are you among it, or do you long to be where Christ has placed his staff? Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I did not put myself in this position. The elders of this church did not put themselves in their position. God appointed a structure for the church, Christ sent the apostles out, and the apostles appointed elders in every church, plural. And then we read over it. You would have to have blinders on to the New Testament to think that you can be an ordinary Christian and not be in submission, in meaningful accountability. I plead with you, not just because, it's not, it's the hardest part of church life, tending to the disciplinary aspect. If anyone were going to want to get rid of it, it's the elders, and myself included. God put it into place. But you have to then recognize that if somebody refuses to be a part of that and to submit to godly discipline, that is one of the key signs that they should question, do I even know him? Or if they have no desire to be found in such a community. 1 John 2 verse 9, they went out from us in order that it might become evident they were not of us. I want to be clear, there are exceptions. People in the hospital prison, newer believers who don't yet know these things, but God's spirit guides them if he's in them. Of course, there's the exception where perhaps a church breaks up and for a time you don't know what church to go to. 
while acknowledging exceptions, you don't live your life exceptionally. You live your life following the ordinary things God has put in place. So I exhort you, as a lifelong mark of your faith, dig in and be a part of the local church. The Lord fully knew it was going to get ugly at times. It's hard to be around sheep. Sometimes they stink. Sometimes they bite. They are not always the the paragon of brilliance in the world. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, God did not choose many of the wise and powerful, many of the glorious and famous of this age, but he chose the weak. He says elsewhere, the off-scourings. Think of a cast iron pan. You're getting the off-scourings. If we are anything, is it not grace? Do not be offended then when the church falls on its face. How will it ever experience reformation if the reformers leave? And it is an issue. We, we, I, this is a very healthy church in many respects, but we too have far more members on the rolls than we have members in the seats. And during this time, I think that can be quite understandable to an extent. But will it remain that way? Will we be comfortable with that, that the people of God cease to be an assembly of God? What then is our final hope? Look at me at verse 16. Hear the certainty in Christ's voice. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. At the time when he's saying, I have other sheep, those people were not yet converted. How does he know they're his? Because his father gave him a people from eternity, covenanted with him. Christ must have his sheep. Maybe you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, the story of Jacob who's serving his uncle Laban. And Laban was constantly trying to cheat him. And God blessed Jacob because Laban agreed that all the sheep that were, all the sheep that were born with certain markings would be Jacob's and all the ones that were born with other markings would be Laban's. And God caused the sheep to be born with Jacob's mark. And then Laban changed the terms. He said, well, all the ones with that mark are now mine. And God changed the marks on the sheep. God who made the body can change genes and do whatever he needs to do to make the sheep bear his mark. God transforms human nature from within. He places his mark upon his people. That is the only hope we can have. Don't despair for the church either. Even so, our confession, question 54, concludes, of this community, I am and always will be a living member. Hold fast to that hope and follow the shepherd. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for placing us among a people spanning all history, for giving our lives significance that we could never derive in one lifetime from ourselves. Thank you for delivering us from death, leading us to green pastures and still waters. We pray that you would please guide your people, guide each one of us to be more and more faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.